Lake Storm Bowling Products, the Bowlers Company, presents the Storm Collegiate Spotlight with Tim Berg and Kendall Miles. Above180.com's Tim Berg and Storm's web content manager and former collegiate bowler at Weber International University, Kendall Miles, are going to introduce a variety of collegiate players, coaches, and key people involved in promoting the sport of bowling. Now, here's Tim and Kendall. Joining us on the Storm Collegiate Spotlight podcast is Andy Dirks. Andy is a head bowling coach at Mount Mercy University. Andy's also an assistant coach of Team USA and an IPSIA certified pro shop operator. Coach Dirks, it's Tim Berg and Kendall Miles here. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. All right, well, let's begin here. Junior Gold wrapped up not too long ago. As you were out there watching all the competitors, can you share what were some of your impressions and then just your your initial takeaways from Junior Gold this year for you? Uh, I think first I would say that the high level of our sport, the higher level youth athletes seem to be getting better and better and better. They're more knowledgeable. I, I feel like every year I go, the really good ones are just really, really good. I mean, the U18 could easily hang with all the U20s, um, and I'm not sure that that was always the case before where you got 15 and 16 year olds that are absolutely going to make a run at all the college kids <laughs> or could. So um, that's, I mean, my impression from a positive thing, that, that's a testament to more accessible knowledge, I think, better knowledge, better coaching, more experiences available for youth um, over the last 15 years for sure. Um, certainly more than when I was a youngster in the 90s. Um, you know, I think it's it's just really cool to see how advanced some of these young players are. Um, yeah, and again, thank you so much for joining us, man. I want to first off leave with you. Know, I've been I've been I had the pleasure of working with you in the past, and um, and it's just really cool to see what you've done in the bowling space. And it's been an honor to really be able to work next to you, man. What you've done for bowling really has been fantastic. So it's an honor and a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Um, but my first question to you is, and without giving out way too many secrets. How do you navigate as a coach a tournament like Junior Gold? Because again, it's a lot of bowlers, it's a lot of it's a lot of venues you're going to, a lot of time, um, and it, we have a lot of new coaches that listen to the podcast and a little bit of guidance you can provide to them. You know, how do you navigate a tournament like Junior Gold with trying to find, you know, not only the people that are currently in your program, maybe someone who can be a future uh, Mount Mercy bowler as well? Well, I think the biggest benefit that USBC has come up with is that registration trade show has become uh, a really key piece in helping navigate junior gold because the people that come to your booth and express interest, then you can sort of map out the squads that they're on and then plan your week. So we spend most of Sunday kind of planning where we're going to be all week. Um, and a lot of that is based on who comes to our booth and they tell us what squad number they're in and, and we want to make sure we get some eyes on those people. Um, but additionally, you know, we want to make sure we catch every squad at least once and we try to um, support our own athletes while we're there as well. So, so we, we map it out. And what I found the best thing to do is to camp out in a bowling center like in one place, either all day or at least half of the day in one. So you're not jumping from to a new squad every every single session. You're going to let squads kind of come through you. Um, and that saves a lot of the, the bouncing around and moving. Um, so our staff, we divide and conquer. We have 
one group that goes to a men's squad and one group that goes to a women's squad. And we kind of let the squads come to us. We make notes, we take video, we communicate with each other. I personally don't talk to very many um, prospective student athletes while we're there, unless I already have a relationship with them. And we're usually not talking about uh, Mount Mercy at all. We're just talking about life or, or bowling or whatever. But um, I usually touch base with them or follow up afterwards. Um, and I tell everybody at the booth that I, I'm not going to bother you while you compete. I'm going to sit in the back. You might not even notice me. If you initiate a conversation with me, then I'll have a conversation with you. Uh, but NCAA coaches can't talk to them while they compete anyway. So I think the right thing to do is, is to not bother them while they're bowling. And coach, you mentioned how the competition at that age seems to be improving. How much of a challenge does that add to your job, at your jobs as, as coaches and your assistant coaches to picking out that, that talent and then seeing where they fit as opposed to what it may have been, you know, five or 10 years ago. Uh, I think I think it's good that it's that it's getting better at the high levels and there's more of them because uh, college bowling is growing as well, right? So our net can be a little bit wider and still build a competitive team, but the talent is also starting to spread out a little more to different teams in college bowling, and I think that's just good for the sport. Um, it, it's good to have a lot of really competitive teams, uh, and so I, I think it actually makes life a little bit easier. Um, in some regard because of that. But then you're always going to see those, like you, everybody knows kind of the names of the kids that are out winning all FYCs and, and really, you know, just doing well in youth bowling. Those names are well known. What I think is fun is finding those, those kids that you haven't seen their name before. And you're like, wow, these are all really good. And you would jot their name down and hopefully we can develop a, a connection at some point and see where they want to go to college. That's the fun part is, is finding those that aren't necessarily the big names that everybody knows about. Um, and, again, like for the, a lot of the listeners that, who are new to the idea of going to college and a lot of the players that are listening, you know, give a little bit of insight of maybe from a coach's eye of what's something that really can help a player stand out to you. You know, what's something that you're kind of looking for, something that maybe will separate a player, um, you know, from someone else that's following the tournament. Um, I think the first thing that's going to stand out just from passing the eye test is um, it's the reality of today's game is they have a rev rate. <laughs> um, you know, they can, they can hook the ball a little bit, but balance at the foul line and straight swing um, with, you know, good energy at the bottom. Those, those are the things that are going to first catch the eye test for me. And then beyond that, um, I pay attention to body language. Uh, how they react to shots, especially shots that don't end up with a good result. I pay attention to how they are interacting with their coach or their parents. I pay attention to um, their pre-shot routine, like how methodical they are. Do they stay in the moment? Do they stay present? Um, so I look a lot of the, I, you know, I watch them for a while if it's somebody that catches my eye because I want to see tendencies. Um, are, is there, if they do miss, is it a, a certain way that they miss all the time? try to catch maybe not their best shot so you can see, you know, where, where their tendencies are and where their growth potential might be. Coach, it's been two years since the name image and likeness rules took effect in college sports. We haven't really discussed so on the podcast, how bowling has been affected. I'm curious if you can share 
how it's affected your program, and where we go from here regarding name, image, and likeness. Uh, I can kind of see this from two sides of a coin, maybe three sides of a coin if that really exists. Um, so first of all, kind of at a, as I mentioned when you talked about doing the podcast today, um, I think in some ways bowling's been ahead of the curve on NAL, uh, ahead of any sport, because great players having a staff contract or having some kind of a sponsorship deal in bowling really wasn't that out of the question long before NIL ever became a thing. So, um, so in many ways, it's already been happening in bowling. Um, obviously, bowlers aren't signing, you know, million-dollar deals with shoe companies and stuff like that. But we have had people getting benefits from their name and image and likeness as college bowlers for quite a while. So um, I think that's growing, and I think it's happening more and more. Um, a, a little bit of the devil's advocate side of me is sees life from a pro shop perspective as well. And sometimes I think that we're getting a little bit too carried away with how many people get staff deals, quote unquote, and and we, oftentimes we just take our best customers away from the pro shops. Um, so I'm a little torn on, on both sides of those. Um, but I think, you know, it's, it's a hard, the concept of NAL, I think makes a lot of sense. There's college athletics is a job and very often it's very difficult to have any source of income while you're trying to compete and while you're trying to train and get your studies done and do your workouts and all of the, the time constraints that we put on on athletes, I think it's important for them to have some source um, of either income or support in some way. So I'm not opposed to it. I do worry a little bit that, you know, on the marquee sports, football and basketball, you get into the millions and stuff like that. It could, it could really change the landscape of all college sports to a point where um, the, the smaller sports like bowling get even put more on the back burner because they're, everybody's going to be going after the big dollars. So, um, I guess I see that from a lot of different perspectives, but in, in a lot of ways, bowling's ahead of the curve. And how has this, if at all, affected your recruiting process for new players? Uh, it really hasn't. I mean, because we're not, you know, it's not like we're out there in the recruiting world telling people, Hey, if you come here, we're going to get you a staff deal. Um, I think that's illegal to do in NCAA anyway, from a recruiting perspective, even though it probably happens. <laughs> Um, but you know, it hasn't really changed anything. I think one of the great things, you know, I've, we've been a storm team for a long time and I've had a great relationship with storm. And I think one of the really smart and nice things that storm has always done is not have an exclusive deal. So, um, if somebody does have an NIL deal, um, they're not completely handcuffed. We do, we do always try to follow, not try to, but we do follow and make sure the majority of our equipment in our bags is, is obviously storm equipment, but, um, you know, the opportunity of storm has never really handcuffed its teams on situations like that. So I don't think it really impacts us, uh, from a recruiting perspective, having a, the team be sponsored has helped us in recruiting. I think in a lot of ways, cause that's one of the questions people ask, you know, who are you sponsored by, or do you have a sponsorship? Um, and it's, it's an attractive um, position for a lot of recruits. 
So how are you seeing programs and universities handle the NIL and how are they getting the money to the kids? How is that working? What's going on? Can you help explain that for some people that might be a little bit green on the topic? Well, from an athletic department perspective, it's illegal for the athletic department itself to have a budget to try to give students money. Um, from an NIL perspective, it has to be from outside uh, outside companies that want to sponsor a particular athlete, um, or there are collectives. And so it is something that our administration has discussed is developing a collective with some um, boosters and alumni to where those boosters, but that, that has to be a separate organization um, that's not directly attached to the athletic department. <clears throat> so, um, and that's what they do at, at most of the power five schools too, is they have um, a collective and boosters can come together and, and they can put money just into a fund if they don't want to pick one particular person. And then the, the collective then can distribute funds to athletes um, for NIL purposes. And changing gears is something that's really new in college bowling as well. It's the idea of a portal. Um, and so, you know, players are able to, you know, transfer, you know, to and from, you know, a little bit differently now. And so how has that impacted, if at all, again, impacted not only, you know, you as a coach, but the team and future and future players as well, future and current players as well? Well, I mean, transferring has always existed. I think the biggest thing that's changed in college bowling um, it, this year, actually, is that no longer um, do you have to sit out a year for the first time you transfer. So now we have just just launched for this season. There's a one-time transfer rule. When you're on your first transfer, you do not have to sit out for a year before you can compete again. You don't have to redshirt. So um, I think that's part of the reason that we've seen an uptick in that transfer portal because they can move and play right away. Um, and honestly, um, this is probably going to sound odd coming from a coach, but I believe that it is the right thing to do. Um, not everybody is going to find the right home when they're actually there in an institution. Um, and um, I think, you know, sometimes they're looking for something different. Yes, sometimes kids will make an assumption that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence and they'll leave and find out that it's not. Um, but that's a learning curve that they have to do. But coaches can leave a program anytime they want. And there's never a repercussion. They don't have to sit for a year before they can coach again if they leave a program. And they recruited those kids, and that's the expectation those kids had. And um, so I don't understand, you know, I I'm in support of an athlete-friendly transfer solution. Um, I do think that coaches with the new recruiting rules are uh, more on the up and up than they used to be. I think there was a time way back that recruiting was a little bit of the wild, wild west. Like I've heard stories of some of our iconic college players from uh, 80s and 90s that were recruited away from other teams while they were at tournaments. So <laughs> that was actually not uncommon in the past. So, um, you know, I, I don't think those things are happening anymore and, and we have to make sure we're diligent on people doing things the right way and doing it ethically. Um, but I think it's good that, that athletes have the freedom to, to make a different decision after their first one. I think that's okay. Do you feel as a coach, there are going to be any coaches that are maybe feeling the pressure to maybe keep players on their team 
um, or is that not something maybe as much of a concern? Uh, I do think that from, you know, athletic administration perspectives, yeah, there's probably going to be some pressure to keep kids or keep numbers or whatever. Um, but, you know, hopefully their goal of retention was already there before this was a landscape. You know, hopefully we want people to progress through college and graduate and get careers and things like that. If we're doing it the right way, that should always be the goal. Um, but I, you know, I also think if, if an athlete doesn't want to be in my program, they're not going to be all in anyway, and I'm going to help them find the right place for them. And anybody who has ever transferred away from my program, um, you know, if they want to continue a great relationship with me, I'm all about it. I value the friendships and the relationships that I've developed over the years. And just because they don't want to continue here doesn't mean that I have anything any ill will toward them or anything against them as a, as a person or an athlete. That just means it didn't work out here. That's okay. We're fine. Coach, you mentioned your, the pro shop hat you wear. So let's head into that. You are the pro shop director at May city bowl. So let's head into that realm and talk a little bit when it comes to things and you have your athletes in, how important is it for everyone to understand if they're bowling for you you know, diffs and, and the different cover stocks and cores and, and what, you know, with the, the new balls that keep coming out and, and some of the new technology we keep hearing about, how important is that for you to, to teach that to them and for them to understand it, to be able to use during competition? Or is it one of these things where it's, here's, here's, your, here's what's going to work best for you, just throw it? I think it's incredibly important to teach as a coach. Um, to give them the tools to hopefully be ready to do that when you're not there, that you should be able to leave the settee and the machine can still run and do things the right way. So I think the education piece is huge. I think having access to a pro shop is a big bonus in that because, you know, they can see the back end of how things work. If they want to learn to drill bowling balls and really get into their own layouts and stuff, they can do that as well. Um, but, but yeah, I think our job as coaches is first to be teachers, um, not just, you know, manage the competition. We should be educating so that hopefully though, maybe some of them will become coaches as well. Um, even better. And then they continue to teach and then we grow more bowling. Um, and in taking that and applying it, I think is, is extremely important as well. Like Tim mentioned, like knowing cover stocks and dips and all of that, but also applying it to maybe more tournament avenues is important. So how often are you encouraging or just your players bowling tournaments while they are, you know, bowling in college? Is it something that they do a lot? Is that an option in Iowa? Is that something they're able to apply to more real life experiences? Uh, there's a lot of stuff to bowl on the weekends around here, uh, both from a youth perspective and a, an adult perspective. So um, our kids bowl a lot on the weekends when we're not traveling. Uh, it's pretty common for carloads of them to go to the same tournament and crash at somebody's house that happens to live close to wherever that tournament is. Um, so, yeah, we encourage that. Um, they're certainly not required to, but it's, it's definitely good to get competition reps in for sure. And then what's neat is when they go together, they often kind of work together like they're still bowling on a team while they're at a tournament. You know, they're discussing where they're playing on the lanes, what bowling balls they're throwing, um, and they help each other when they bowl those tournaments. 
Coach Dirks, I want to thank you for being here today on the podcast. Always great catching up with you as um, as we, we're in kind of the tail end of our summer month here of, uh, of July and, and heading into August. And, and before we know it, you know, everyone will be back at practice. Kids will be back in school and, um, and chewing up on the lanes and getting ready for some of those first tournaments. So thank you again for joining us. All the best of luck. Yeah, thank you very much. We uh, Our move-in is August 11th, so it's right around the corner, and it will be rolling right away.